Wow. After an anthem like that, I'm tempted to say amen and do the benediction and go home. But uh, after not preaching for two weeks, you know, we're not doing that. Because I, I, I might have had a camp meeting with a bunch of sermons all in once, but I hadn't preached in about two weeks, so I got a lot to say to you people. So. <laughs> uh, I would invite you, though, to go ahead and stick your finger in the Bible verses that are mentioned in the bulletin today, because we're going to be hopping around with Scripture a little bit today. So go ahead and, go ahead and mark those, uh, those passages, because we're going to get to them in a second. Um, one of the cool things I get to do as a preacher is to be part of a class that we teach typically in the fall of most years to our 6th and 7th graders, 7th and 8th graders, called Confirmation. If you grew up Methodist or Episcopal or Catholic or Presbyterian, you probably went through a Confirmation class. I know I did. I know many of you did as well. Confirmation is, is the completion of something that happens when we baptize an infant. Uh, Kim kind of gave away, kind of, me, me and Kim, the tallest morning, but where she went this morning in her children's moment, it's kind of where my sermon is going to start out this morning. The reason we as Methodists and then Presbyterians and, 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 and Catholics and Episcopals and Anglicans, we baptize infants. And I'm going to explain why we do that a little bit, what this guy do with where I'm going in one second. But one of the things that's a huge deal in the Bible is covenant. God is a God of covenant. We see God doing covenants over and over and over and over through Scripture. So within Scripture, we see God make a covenant with Noah. Remember that? After the flood, God promised Noah, and I will not destroy the world in this manner again. We see God make a covenant with Abraham and say, if you follow my voice, you will have a land and a people. We see God make a covenant with David. That God took, promised David there would always be one of his descendants upon the throne. These are covenants within the Old Testament. And one of the things you see with covenants in the Old Testament is you see that every time God makes a promise or an agreement to the people, a covenant, God always seals that covenant with a sign. Every covenant has to it a sign. So with Noah, he made a covenant with Noah. And what was the seal of the covenant with Noah? Come on, you're paying attention to Kim. What was it? Rainbow. That's right. So he made a covenant with Abraham. What was the covenant with the sign that sealed the covenant with Abraham? Circumcision. With David, the kingdom. So every time God makes a covenant with individuals or people, the community, there is a sign of that covenant. Okay, well, we are under the new covenant of grace. We are saved by grace through faith, lest no one can boast. The new covenant. What's the sign of the new covenant? Baptism. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. That's how we show that we're part of this new covenant of grace. Well, going back to the Old Testament... Who received the covenant, that, if circumcision was the great covenant of the Jewish people? Who received that covenant of circumcision? Children. On the eighth day after a child was born, a male child was born, they were taken to the temple and they were circumcised. Let me ask you a question. Did every circumcised male in the Old Testament follow God? No. Have you read the Old Testament? <laughs> no. 
They were more stubborn than we were sometimes. So being part of the covenant did not necessarily mean that you followed God. It meant you were part of that community. Later, when a child became 13, the child would claim that gift of the covenant of that community for themselves when they accepted it, and that was their bar mitzvah. Okay, well, around the year 100, when the first generation of Christians began to marry each other, and they began to have Christian children, children born to Christians, the question was, what happens to these children? Well, they said, we are covenant people. So just as children under the old covenant were circumcised so that they were part of the covenant community and then had to later claim that for themselves, children under the new covenant are also marked with the sign of the new covenant, which is baptism. And then later, those children had to claim that baptism for themselves. That's why we baptize infants in our tradition. But the child has to claim that. Or they have to confirm that. Confirmation is when the children confirm or claim the gift that is given to them in their baptism as children. They claim it as their very own. They confirm it. In fact, my favorite confirmation material that I ever used when I taught confirmation was a class entitled to claim the name. It's when the child claims the gift that was given to them by the church and by their family. That's what confirmation is. Confirmation is an incredibly important time in the life of a, church, of a child, but also in the church. Because it's when that child makes that claim of their faith. They claim it for themselves. It's theirs. Because you've heard me, when we baptize an infant, and I walk that young and around, what do I always tell, what do I always tell y'all? You've heard me say it. You've heard me say it a million times. Every time I walk that young and around, I'll, I'll say, this child, the Jesus that we live out, will be the Jesus that one day this child claims as their Savior. You've heard me say that, hadn't you? You have. Confirmation is when that child makes that decision to claim that gift that was given to them in their baptism, to claim the covenant community. So now they're no longer born into it, but they have claimed it as their very selves. Confirmation is a very big deal in life of our church. And even, even children who are baptized, who maybe haven't been baptized yet, or their, children, their parents did not baptize them as infants, they go through confirmation to get taught what we believe. Children who have been baptized through a profession of faith, they can go through it as well. It's a very important time where we teach what it is that we believe. We teach the, uh, the basics of Christian doctrine, what we believe in our church, things such as that. So anyway, I was, I was teaching confirmation a few years back, and I was thinking a lot about formation and how we're formed. And I asked the kids a question. I said, okay, how many of y'all are Ole Miss fans? And some raised their hand. How many of y'all are state fans? I said, okay, so what does it mean to be a state fan? And they could tell me all about ringing cowbells and wearing maroon and going to ball games. And Ole Miss fans, they could tell all about Holly, Hotty Toddy and the Grove, like, you know, they, they, they knew what it meant. And being an Ole Miss or a state fan was a huge part of their identity, a, a huge part of their family's identity. It was a big, stinking deal to be an Ole Miss fan. Or if you're an LSU fan, you know about Hold That Tiger. If you're an Arkansas fan, Woo Pig Suey. If you're an MC fan, I don't, I don't know what we got at MC. We got something, I'm sure, but I don't know what it is. I must have missed that class. We all got something. Every school that you're part, that you go to, every fan base has something that's a big deal to you. And you would never, you would never, if you're an Ole Miss fan, you're not going to randomly decide to be a state fan, are you? 
No. Can you imagine the betrayal that would mean? If you're a state fan, you're not going to woke up one morning and say, you know what, say I'm an Ole Miss fan. No, you would never dream of doing that. That identity as a state at Ole Miss or an LSU or an Arkansas or an Alabama fan is too central to the core of your being that you would never dream of changing that. And I, I'm not mad at the schools. In fact, I'm kind of envious. Because our colleges and sports teams do a really good job of, um, of teaching how to be a fan or maybe to use a biblical word, they do a really good job of making disciples. In fact, I would argue that Ole Miss, State, LSU, Bama, they do a much better job of making disciples than the church does. They really do. And I'm kind of envious. <laughs> and I thought a lot about that, like, how can we, as the church, do a good enough, do a better job of forming our people, forming our students, forming our children, forming our adults in the same way that they do? That got me, it's got me thinking a lot about here and who we are at St. Matthew's. This past couple year and a half been kind of interesting, hasn't it? <laughs> I'm tired of saying interesting. I'm tired of saying the phrase in times like these, you know. I'm tired of commercials that begin with that phrase. But we're going to get out of this soon. We are. I'm fully confident. But I began to think about, okay, as we emerge from COVID and all of this stuff, who do we want to be? What do we want our church to be about? Who are we? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Methodist or a Wesleyan? What does it mean to be part of St. Matthew's? And as Kim was talking about, we're starting back to school. The next few weeks, we're going to kind of do what I'm calling St. Matthew's 101. What does it mean to be part of our church? What do we believe what are our values? We're going to spend time the next few weeks through September talking about what are our doctrines. In other words, what are the things that we believe? And what are our values? What do we live out? What are our doctrines that we believe? And what are our values that we live out? Well, today we're going to start with the most important doctrine we can have. And that's the question we've got to answer off the bat is, who is God? Because... I don't know how many of y'all um, are math people. I'm not a math person. I do not like math. One of my favorite quotes of all time is by St. Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas once said, algebra is the language of the devil, and I agree with that. Never liked math. But if you remember back to your math days, if you ever took geometry, remember the proofs you had to do in geometry? The thing about geometry proofs was this. If you got the initial idea wrong, the initial statement, it didn't matter how much work you did. If you started off in the wrong place, all the work didn't matter. You were still wrong. You could have done all the work right, but if your starting point was wrong, it didn't matter. That's what proofs teach you. You got to start off in the right place. The right place determines where you're going. That's how it is with our faith. We have to start off in the right place. So the right place we start off with is this question. Well, who is God? 
Because if we don't answer that question right, the rest of it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about all the rest of it. If we don't answer the question of who God is right, then the rest of it's for naught. It doesn't make a bit of difference. We can do all the work, but if we don't start in the right place, it doesn't matter. So who is God? And those four verses of Scripture we talked about are going to answer those questions for us. As Kim said, we've got to start off with the right book. We start off with Scripture. Well, who is God? Well, the first passage we're going to look at is going to be 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter, chapter, um, chapter 4, oh, uh, I thought that I marked, there it is. See, I got, I got too many verses today. I have to jump around. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 16 and 17. I'm sorry, verse 15 and 16. Instead, as he who called you is holy... Be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For as that is written, for it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Who is God? First, he's holy. Y'all, that's the entire book of Leviticus. When you read all of Leviticus, God will say, do this right here because I am holy. Do this right here because I am holy. Scripture's clear over and over again that God is holy. Okay, cool. What does that mean? Because that's a church word. To be holy is to be different, to be set apart. God is holy in that God is different than we are. Scripture says his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. God is different than we are. God is, there is no sin in God. God is perfect. God is pure. God is set apart. God is not one of us. God is different than us. He is holy and sin cannot enter God's presence. God is, God's ways are not our ways. So sometimes y'all, God doesn't make sense. How many of you have ever looked up to heaven and said, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I don't understand? How many, how many of you have done that today? <laughs> if God is holy, that means that God must be someone who is approached by faith. If God was a God that you understood, it wouldn't require faith. If God was a God where everything made sense, it wouldn't require faith. If God's methods and plans were always clear as day and we understood them perfectly, it wouldn't take faith, y'all. God is holy. God is other. God is different. So God must be approached by faith. Scripture says it is impossible to please God apart from faith. We can't always understand God because God is not one of us. That's why it takes faith. Y'all? If you serve a God who never disagrees with you, if you serve a God who does nothing but affirm you and make you feel good, then you serve a God of your own creation. The God of Scripture will convict you. The God of Scripture will disagree with you. A God who is holy is not going to always be like us and think like us and act like us. A God who is holy is going to be somebody, a God who's going to demand that we change and be like him. Who is God? First, he's holy. Who is God? Secondly, we turn to 1 John. Where it says this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. 
God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God. And God abides in them. God is love. Yes, he is holy and he, and he is not able to be understood. He is different than we are. And he must be approached with faith. But God's also love. God loves us perfectly. It says not just that God loves us, but that God is love. And where love abides, God is there. That God calls us to be like him, and God then calls us to love. So for us as Christians, hatred is not an option. It's simply not an option because Scripture is clear that God is love. So if God is holy, we're called to be holy and different from the world we live in. But God's also love, and God calls us to love as he loves us to be like him, to be conformed into his image, to love as he loves. So where we find love, we find God. That's something that everybody can know because everyone can know the love of a father. We, we call that prevenient grace. If you've ever experienced love, you've experienced God. You've experienced God's grace in your life. So who is God? First, he's holy. He's different than we are. Second, he's love. He loves us. He calls us to love each other as he loves us. He is love. Third, we turn to Matthew. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Who is God? He's a God revealed to us in Trinity. He's a God that is triune. Now, I'm not going to sit here and unpack the, the, all the mystery of this Trinity because I can't do that. But here's what I do know about the Trinity. The Trinity at its core is understood as the relationship that the Father has with the Son, has with the Spirit, has with the Father. That's why you often see the Trinity represented as a triangle. The Trinity at its core, the Godhead, is about the relationship that each person of the Trinity has for the other. We are made in the image of a triune God, meaning that we are made in the image of a God that's about relationships, meaning that we are made for relationships. That's why this last year it's been so hard. We're not made to be isolated. We're not made to be alone. We're made for relationship. We are most who we are when we're in right relationship with God and with each other. That's the core of what life should be, is loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbor with all that we are. God is a God that in his very core, in the Godhead, is a God of relationship. God's very being as a triune God is a God of relationship. And God has made us for that. So who is God? He's holy. He is love. He is three in one. He is Trinity. And last, but definitely not least, in Colossians, we see this in Colossians 1.15. He, he meaning Jesus here, is the, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is a God fully revealed to us in Jesus Christ. If you want to know the Father, you have to know the Son. If you want to know who God is, you have to look to Jesus. Well, how do we know who Jesus is? We read his word. When we read his word, we understand who Jesus is. We can't know Jesus apart from reading who he is in Scripture. And if we want to know the Father, we have to look to the Son. If we want to know the Son, we have to read what Scripture reveals to us about who he is. So who is God? He is holy. He is other. He's different than we are, and we approach him through faith. He is love, that where love abides, there God is, and we are called to love. He is three in one. He's triune. He, is, uh, he in and of itself is a relationship. 
and we are made for relationships that he has fully revealed to us in Jesus Christ. That's how we know who God is, is that we can know him through Christ Jesus. Y'all, that's where it starts. If we do not live fully in who Jesus Christ is, fully in who this God is, then nothing else makes sense. It all starts there. That's the foundation, y'all. That's the foundation. I love seeing old abandoned things. I, I love driving around the country and seeing old houses that, you, that aren't there anymore. And you can see where they used to be because the old brick chimney's still there. You know what I'm talking about? Seeing those brick chimneys out in the country? Doesn't matter what's happened. Doesn't matter the storms that have come. Doesn't matter the fires that rage. But brick chimneys survived, hadn't they? Because they're the right foundation. That strong brick. Y'all, I wish I could tell you life was easy and fun. Nothing's but candy, but cotton candy and unicorns. You and I both of them, that's not life. We have to have the right foundation. And the right foundation is this. Who is God? He is holy. He is love. He is three in one. And he is fully revealed to us in Christ Jesus. So before we can know fully who we are as a church, we must fully know who God is. Today, do we know that God? Let's pray.